Take a trip with me in 1913 To Calumet, Michigan in the copper country I'll take you to a place called Italian Hall And the miners are having their big Christmas ball the song 1913, Massacre, became popular as a union rights song. Bob Dylan even referenced it in his song for Woody. It's still popular today among union workers. The timber workers didn't just represent the workers in the mills and in the woods. The local 19 headquarters included a barber shop and a tobacco and confectionery shop and served as a gathering place for union members and friends. On Christmas Eve in 1913 in Calumet, Michigan, more than 500 striking miners and their families were gathered for a Christmas party on the second floor of Italian Hall. The cry of fire started a stampede that crushed or suffocated 73 victims. 59 of them were children. In 1945, Woody Guthrie recorded and released the song 1913 Massacre, based on this event, commonly known as the Italian Hall Disaster. On today's show, Woody Guthrie Center director Katie Shaw talks about the song and the story behind it. And on Labor History and 2. The year was 1951. That was the day New York City was struck by the Great Bagel Famine. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is labor history today. Boss thug men are milling outside. The copper boss thugs stuck their heads in the door. One of them yelled and he screamed, There's a fire. A lady, she hollered, There's no such a thing. Keep on with your party, there's no such a thing. The Calumet Massacre is most commonly known as the Italian Hall Massacre, and it happened in Michigan on December 24th, 1913. It was a Christmas party for families. The copper miners brought their families to celebrate. There was Christmas tree, food, and, and they were gathering together in camaraderie. And someone yelled fire. And there were, I think, one very narrow entrance to the second floor. It resulted in a stampede to get out, and 73 people were crushed in this incident. Woody Guthrie heard about the Calumet Massacre through reading the autobiography of Ella Bloor, who was a women's auxiliary volunteer and had done work with the miners and families who were trying to form a union and had direct knowledge of the incident. These stories really struck a nerve with Woody, and he ended up taking that story and writing the song 1913 Massacre. The song became more popular as time went on. The story of the Calumet Massacre was widely reported because it was a tragedy. It happened on Christmas Eve. It was women, men, children. It was families that were killed. The song 1913 Massacre became popular as a union rights song. Bob Dylan even referenced it in his song for Woody. It's still popular today among union workers. Stories of tragedy, things that have happened, have been recorded not just in drawing or writing, but in song. That was how traditions and stories are passed down, because there are lessons in those songs. These horrible incidents are incredibly moving 
and they touch a nerve with humanity and I think artists realize that and they pick that up and they carry it forward. But the lyrics to the 1913 Massacre song we do have here in our archives, particularly the last you know, four lines are impactful. The piano played a slow funeral tune. The piano played a slow funeral tune And the town is lit up by a cold Christmas moon The parents they cried and the miners they moaned See what your greed for money has done That was Woody Guthrie Center director Katie Shaw with the story behind Woody Guthrie's song 1913 Massacre. It's from a video that includes photos, and we've got a link to it in the show notes. Next up, Central Organizing, a brief history of unions at sawmills in Bend, Oregon, from 1916 to 2000. The report comes to us from Michael Funky, host of the great podcast, the Radical Songbook, which you can find wherever you listen to podcasts. This is not a complete history of unions in Central Oregon. It is simply my effort to pull together some local labor history based on research of reliable sources. There is much more that I don't know. Central Oregon is largely ignored in written Oregon labor history, and unions are largely ignored in Central Oregon history. I've researched history that includes many more unions in Central Oregon, but this piece focuses on the unions at three wood mills in Bend, Shevlin Hickson, Brooks Scanlon, and Corpine that operated between 1916 and 2000. There have been several other smaller sawmills in Central Oregon, in Gilcrest, Lapine, Prineville, Madras, and other locations, but their history is sketchy at best. I'd like to thank Bend artist Sheila Dunn for granting me permission to use her wonderful painting, Millworker, which you can see in a downtown Bend alley just off Oregon Street, right around the corner from Smith Rock Records. I'd also like to thank the family of Ray Canterbury for providing me photos of him as well as posters of Bend events he participated in. And thank you to the Deschutes Historical Museum for granting me permission to include some of their photos of the mills and logging camps in this project. Also, a big thanks to Jerry Lemke, Professor Emeritus at Holy Cross College and author of One Union in Wood, who gave me copies of correspondence between the Brooks Scanlon mill manager, the mill owner in Minneapolis and an employer group in Portland from 1917. Not surprisingly, much of Ben's early labor history is tied to the two pine mills that operated for several decades on opposite sides of the Deschutes River. Shevlin Hickson opened in March of 1916 and Brooks Scanlon opened the next month. Raymond Canterbury, seen here, was born in Iowa in 1885. He migrated to Oregon in his late 20s and taught in Crook County grade schools from 1914 to 1916. Low wages forced him to look elsewhere for work, and in 1917, he was hired as a secretary at the Brooks Scanlon Mill. Canterbury's review of lumber company records led him to believe that workers deserved better wages, hours of work, safety, and working conditions. So, he decided to organize a union. He met with three other workers to talk the idea over, and they were all promptly fired. 
Word quickly spread, and on October 22, 1917, 200 Brooks Scanlon workers went on strike. Several dozen workers at the Sheldon Hickson Mill soon joined them. On October 23rd, mill workers formed Local 19 of the International Union of Timber Workers, which was affiliated with the American Federation of Labor, the AFL. Canterbury was elected local union president. Records are sketchy, but it appears the strike lasted about a week. The union did win a contract, much to the chagrin of other employers in the state. But near as I can tell, they did not gain much more than a company-controlled grievance procedure. This photo shows both sawmills in full operation on opposite sides of the Deschutes River, now called the Old Mill District. As unhappy as mill bosses were about the new union, they were glad that they didn't have to contend with the radical, industrial workers of the world. The previously mentioned Brooks Scanlon correspondence shows a visceral hatred of the IWW, a militant union that included people of color and women in its ranks and flatly said it had nothing in common with the ruling class bosses. This union organizing in Bend took place during World War I and on the eve of the nation's first Red Scare, which saw Wobblies and other radicals jailed, beaten, murdered, and deported for their lack of patriotism. Within days of the Bend strike, yet another organization was formed in Wheeler on the Oregon coast. The Loyal Legion of Loggers and Lumbermen was a conservative, patriotic organization that claimed to be a union. The 4L, as it was known, was really a company union created in opposition to the Wobblies and in support of the U.S. entry into World War I. They soon organized locals at the two bend mills and vied with the timber workers for members. The 4Ls had a no-strike policy. The IWW, or Wobblies, held considerable influence among loggers and mill workers in Washington and some parts of western Oregon, and they called strikes and job action several times in the 19-teens and early 1920s. They were also noted for soapboxing. IWW members would stand on a soapbox at a street corner and demand free speech. More often than not, they spent the night in jail. The IWW archives includes the following 1919 reference, quote, In Bend, Oregon, a mob raided the Union Hall at night, destroyed furniture and supplies, and ran the delegate out of town, unquote. That was mild compared to the brutal government and vigilante attacks and murders of Wobblies in other Pacific Northwest towns and woods, including Klamath Falls. The IWW hated both the 4L and the timber workers. The 4L fought both the IWW and the timber workers, and the timber workers despised both the 4L and the WABs. So, it is unlikely that either the timber workers or the 4L rose to the defense of a Wobbly who was arrested in Bend in December 1922 for trying to organize a free speech campaign. Timber Workers Local 19 continued to represent many of the workers at the two pine mills in Bend, despite the incursion of the 4Ls. Ray Canterbury debated 4L leaders at the Bend Hippodrome, shown above, which was where the Deschutes County Library is today. The Hippodrome hosted community meetings, socials, and sporting events, including roller skating, from 1916 to 1942. Union meetings were also held in Ben's Liberty Theater, which has been refurbished on Ben's Wall Street. 
The timber workers didn't just represent the workers in the mills and in the woods. The local 19 headquarters included a barber shop and a tobacco and confectionery shop and served as a gathering place for union members and friends. In 1920, Local 19 held a dance and auction in honor of Ray Canterbury and raised $600 for the union. Canterbury, shown top left in this photo, ultimately rose through the ranks to become national president of the union. Canterbury was a leading spokesperson for the timber workers and spoke at mass meetings around the Pacific Northwest. But the timber workers fell on hard times during the Lumber Depression of 1921. Membership plummeted with layoffs, and by the end of March 1923, the timber workers closed their doors. Ray Canterbury, seen here in later life, moved to the Puget Sound area of Washington and helped to build the Canterbury Oyster Farm. The demise of the Timber Workers Union left the pro-company 4Ls alone in the Bend Mills. In 1924, Guy E. Fuller, president of the 4L in Bend, wrote a poem summing up how the 4L saw itself breaking with the past of labor strife through employer leadership. The 4L was not like those crazy wobblies and their, quote, wild revolts and stupid hates, unquote, said Fuller. But eventually, mill workers, like those pictured here, wised up. In 1933, one of Bend's 4L locals demanded the resignation of 4L President William Rugnitz after he told Labor Secretary Francis Perkins that he led a labor organization. Bend 4Lers sent a letter to other 4L locals encouraging them to join in demand for a 20% wage increase. They didn't get the wage increase, and Rugnitz didn't resign. But a year later, the Roosevelt administration officially labeled the 4L a company union, and in 1937, the National Labor Relations Board banned company unions. Amid the 1930s surge in industrial unionism led by the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, the International Woodworkers of America was formed in 1937. Harold Pritchett was elected union president. Communists and socialists and other leftists played a vital role in organizing industrial unions like the auto workers, the electrical workers, and steel workers. The IWA was no exception. Harold Pritchett, like Harry Bridges of the militant West Coast International Longshore and Warehouse Union, was close to the Communist Party, if not a member. Pritchett, on the left, was Canadian. Bridges, on the right, was Australian. The fact that neither of them were U.S. citizens was seized upon by right-wingers in Congress, the American Legion, and in Pritchard's case, the Portland Red Squad. Both were threatened with deportation. It took him years, but Bridges successfully fought off deportation. Pritchett was not so lucky. He was deported to Canada in 1940 as growing anti-communist forces within the CIO helped IWA conservatives win leadership. I don't know if the struggle for power within the IWA impacted workers at the Bend Pine Mills, but it was during this period that workers at the Brooks Scanlon and Shevlin Hickson Mills and mills in Prineville and Gilcrest voted to join the union. 
Brooks Scanlon management resisted the union and the National Labor Relations Board had to intervene to secure a fair election. On October 10, 1940, 363 workers in two units of the mill voted to join the IWA and 287 voted for no union. Turnout was 92% of the workforce. On September 23, 1941, 84% of eligible Chevlin Hickson workers turned out to choose between the IWA and an AFL union that was close to management. The Ben Bulletin above reported that the IWA won by 60 votes, 491 to 431. The organizing of the pine mills in Bend took place during a time when the town was much smaller and even more white than it is today. For example, the 1940 census counted 10,036 residents of Bend, including just 10 black people, four Asian or Asian American people, and one person from South America. The census did not specify Latino or indigenous residents. No people of color worked at the mills at that time. Brooks Scanlon workers went on strike on November 27, 1941, after bargaining over wages and paid vacations broke down. It was the second strike in the history of Ben's two pine mills. But the strike came to a swift conclusion on December 8, 1941, the day after Pearl Harbor. Workers accepted the company's wage offer. They did win one week of paid vacation per year. IWA members vowed to do what they could to win the fight against fascism. Yilcrest was a company town. That means the company owned housing stores, schools, and even churches. Mill owners vehemently opposed unionization, but the workers voted for IWA representation in 1942. A 2012 book titled Gilcrest, Oregon, The Model Company Town includes a lot of mistruths about the union in Gilcrest. There were strikes at most Central Oregon mills in 1944, 45, and 46, largely in response to employer profiteering and the post-war demand for higher wages. There was a national strike wave in 1946, with workers in auto, steel, electrical, and other industries hit the bricks, demanding an end to the wartime wage freeze. Workers won some major gains across the country. There was a short-lived left resurgence in the IWA in 1946, leading to the election of Red Block candidates for first vice president, secretary treasurer, and trustee. But the conservative White Block carried the day in IWA District 6, which included workers at the Bend Sawmills. A year later, Congress passed the Anti-Union Taft-Hartley Act. Many unions fought against Taft-Hartley, as this ad from the April 16, 1949 bulletin shows. But the white bloc successfully used the new law to force leftists out of IWA leadership. Taft-Hartley gave workers an opportunity to withdraw from a closed union shop or to enter into a union shop agreement. As the bulletin reported on March 9, 1948, Workers at Shevlin Hickson voted for a union shop by 79%. The next day, Brooks Scanlon workers voted for a union shop by 74%. All workers at the two mills had to pay their fair share of dues to the union to administer the contract that governed their compensation and working conditions. By 1950, Unsustainable overcutting on nearby company-owned land had reduced the amount of timber to the point where Brooks Scanlon took over the Shevlin-Hickson mill. 
Brooks Scanlon workers were among some 100,000 lumber workers who struck mills throughout the Pacific Northwest in June of 1954. After three months on the picket lines, they returned to work with no significant wage gains, and they lost their union shop. Brooks Scanlon workers were no longer required to pay dues to the IWA, even though the union still negotiated contracts and defended the rights of all workers at the mill and in the woods. Logging camps were crucial to the harvesting of ponderosa pines that were hauled out by train or wagon to be milled in Bend. Loggers, mostly single men, would spend months deep in the woods. Around 1932, Shevlin Hickson consolidated its mining camps into one big camp that could be hauled into the woods on rail cars. Houses, a store, a post office, a barber shop, a school, up to 400 buildings in all were called the town of Shevlin. This photo shows Shevlin in 1947, southeast of Shemolt. Company buildings are in the foreground with housing behind. The isolation fostered a strong sense of community, but the company was in control and workers who challenged the bosses had little recourse because they risked getting fired out in the woods. That said, loggers in Shevlin did join the IWA in the early 1940s. The town moved three times and was closed down when Brooks Scanlon bought Shevlin Hickson in 1950. In the mid-50s, the IWA joined forces with the Wilderness Society in an effort to protect a large area of Oregon's Cascade Forest. That ultimately created the Three Sisters Wilderness, 287,000 acres, protected under the Wilderness Act passed by Congress in 1964. The International Woodworkers Association's Union Hall was at 933 Bond Street in downtown Bend. If you go in to the Desperado Boutique at 933 Northwest Bond, you can see where workers stubbed out their cigarette butts on the wood floor inside the door. That union hall was strike headquarters for some 400 Brooks Scanlon workers in 1972. They were on strike for two months that summer and ultimately won a three-year contract that improved wages, benefits, vacation time, and the pension plan. The company gained a new management rights language and a cooling-off period that requires meeting with a federal mediator before either a strike or a lockout. The Woodworkers Union was ingrained in the life of Bend from the 1940s into the 1980s. At their peak, the two Bend companies employed over 4,000 workers in the mills and in the woods. Labor Day picnics sponsored by the Woodworkers Union were huge community affairs for decades, with thousands of people enjoying food and drink, dancing, softball games, foot races, horseshoes, and boxing exhibitions. Union presidents and the mill managers often served as city and county officials during a period when 30% of Ben's residents either worked in the mills or were dependents of mill workers. In 1980, Brooks Scanlon was absorbed into Diamond International and renamed DAW, D-A-W, Forest Products. Logging operations were shut down in 1985. 800 DAW workers in Bend and Redmond went on strike in June of 1988, joining several thousand mill workers across the West who demanded restoration of wage cuts from 1986. IWA Local 3-7 members were on strike at the same time that Paper Workers Local 406 members at another bend mill, Corpine, hit the bricks. More on that in a few minutes. 
The DAW workers ended their three-month strike on September 12th, ratifying a contract that provided an 11% wage increase over three years and a $1,400 signing bonus. During the late 1980s, the company again changed hands, bought by Crown Pacific. The mill produced lumber intermittently until 1994, when, because of diminishing timber supplies, Crown Pacific shut it down. Crown Pacific publicly blamed federal logging restrictions to protect the northern spotted owl, but the real problem was a long history of unsustainable logging practices. The mill owners had aggressively clear-cut their land holdings, close to half a million acres for both companies, with little attention to replanting. Over time, the mills became increasingly dependent on the federal government for subsidized timber sales of public lands. When those sales could no longer be sustained, the mill found itself without reliable source of timber. In the early 1960s, Brooks Scanlon joined the larger Willamette Industries in a joint venture opening the Corpine Particle Board plant in Bend. Workers were represented by the United Paper Workers, UPIU, which merged with the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers, OCAW, in 1999 to form PACE, and that union has since been absorbed into the United Steelworkers. Willamette Industries took full ownership of Corpine in 1976. After working almost a year without a new contract, 175 Corpine workers went on strike in June of 1988. They returned to work after six weeks after winning some contract gains under threat of being permanently replaced. Weyerhaeuser, a giant in the wood industry, purchased Corpine from Willamette Industries and closed the nation's largest remaining particle board plant in 2002. That closure brought an end to the unionized wood industry in Bend as low-wage service and tourist industry jobs became the new norm. There is power in a union. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one But the union makes us strong Solidarity forever Solidarity forever Solidarity forever For the union makes I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1951. That was the day New York City was struck by the Great Bagel Famine. 300 members across 32 bakeries of the Bagel Bakers of America Local 338 walked off the job over wages and working conditions. Morris Siegel, business agent for the local, stated that the Bakers Association had been lax in living up to the welfare fund payments and sanitary provisions of the contract. 
the bagel bakers produced 1.2 million bagels weekly for New York City consumers. The Wisconsin Jewish Chronicle noted, quote, the only ones welcoming this respite are the salmon. Diners, delicatessens, and Teamster delivery drivers were all rocked by the strike, which lasted for six weeks. The two sides were so deadlocked that a mediator who had effectively settled a smoked salmon dispute three years earlier was brought in to help settle the conflict. The bagel bakers won a $3 a day wage increase and were ready to return to work. But the Teamsters would not begin deliveries until they were paid for lost wages due to the lack of deliveries made during the strike. The bagel bakers would engage in job actions effectively over the course of the next 15 years until they too suffered the fate of many an industrial worker, that of automation. Their labor would eventually be replaced by labor-saving bagel-making machines by the late 1960s. The Bagel Bakers Local 338 Was a union that was based in New York State And they set the minimum wages of the Yiddish bagel bakeries And controlled all of the stages from the flour sack to the plate But like the rail for more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at laborhistoryin2. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, sure hope you do. Like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. That's a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Very special thanks this week to the Woody Guthrie Center and to the Radical Songbook Podcast. We've got links to both in the show notes. Our music was 1913 Massacre, sung by Woody Guthrie. And of course, you just heard Pete Seeger singing Solidarity Forever. Closing out today's show is Sawmill Song by Hal Ketchum. Labor History Today is produced by the Labor Heritage Foundation and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. You can keep up with all the latest labor arts news. Subscribe to the free Labor Heritage Foundation newsletter at laborheritage.org. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history. And see you next time.